Welcome to Youth Talk Climate, an environmental issues podcast by young people for young people. This podcast is created in association with the Alliance for Climate Education. Let's dive in. Over 2 million miles of pipelines stretch across the United States to transport crude oil and gas for the fossil fuel industry, and a growing movement of environmentalists and civil rights activists are fighting against them. The construction of these pipelines continues to threaten indigenous rights and sovereignty. Oil spills create irreversible damage on the environment and harm local communities by contaminating water and killing wildlife. To tackle this complicated issue, we sit down with Phyllis Hasbrook from the Wisconsin Safe Energy Alliance and Mira Grinsfelder of 350 Madison. Their work is devoted to fighting against Enbridge pipelines, which transport toxic tar sands oil throughout North America. Later, we will speak with Seth Jensen of 350 Madison's Divest and Defund campaign to learn about a direct action young people can take today to stop the money pipeline. Thank you for tuning in to Youth Talk Climate. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Youth Talk Climate. Today we're talking with Phyllis Hasbrook of the Wisconsin Safe Energy Alliance and recent UW-Madison grad, Mira Grinsfelder of 350 Madison. Hello. Hello. What lovely red hair you have. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so yeah, I'm Sela, and then this is um, Mario joining us. Hi, Mario. Hi, Mario. You look like you're an angel in a blaze of glory. <laughs> Yeah, my, my light was on. I didn't even realize this. I usually record in like my room. This is like my living room now. I have actually no idea what you look like because you're such, you're so bright. Right, glowing. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even recognize you. Now I'm just going to get rid of the speaker view. No, I'm going to get rid of the self view. I just remember, how do you do that? Uh, You've just been talking to yourself. The whole there time. you go. <laughs> it's unnatural, you know. It's unnatural to look at yourself while you're talking because we don't have eyes on stalks that could turn around and look at us. Um, so let's just start with who you are and what you're currently working on to help the environment. Uh, Phyllis, can we start with you? Um, I've been working with the Wisconsin Safe Energy Alliance for four years now. So um, I started in 2016, and we're a group that is fighting oil pipelines in Wisconsin and um, started on line 66, which is the name of a proposed new pipeline that would be a twin to line 61, which does exist already. There's four pipelines in the line 61 corridor, which goes diagonally through Wisconsin from Superior down to Delavan, and then it goes straight south into Illinois. And it's part of the Enbridge empire of pipelines through Canada and the United States. And um, Line 61 brings tar sands oil, which is the dirtiest form of fossil fuel on the planet. So that's what we did for uh, about three and a half years. And I mean, we're still in touch with people, but we're concentrating more now on a different pipeline, which is hotter, so to speak. And that is Line 5. And uh, line five goes from Superior across northern Wisconsin, including through the Bad River Reservation, and then uh, across the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and through the, under the Straits of Mackinac, and then through Michigan and into Sarnia, Canada. So basically, it's a shortcut for a Canadian company to take Canadian oil from Canada to Canada by way of Wisconsin. 
And uh, so we're working to stop that. I'll stop now and let Mira talk a bit. Um, I'm Mira. I use she, her pronouns. I am here tonight representing the Tar Sands team, which is a joint team between Sierra Club and Madison 350, organizing against Tar Sands pipelines. So um, we work together around line five opposition. So next question is, uh, how were you introduced to this work? What a good question. I know how you, you, you found us online, I think, because you sent me an email that had an expletive uh, followed by Ember <laughs> in the title. I learned about, yeah, yeah, yeah. I learned about um, Line 5 by learning about Line 3. So I'm, t- I'm originally from the Twin Cities, and um, right now Minnesota is in a similar, like, pipeline battle against a line three that's also part of Enbridge's network and line three that also goes through Wisconsin but has already been built in Wisconsin and so Minnesota is kind of like the last final frontier and is putting up like incredible inspiring like unique creative I could keep going with just beautiful adjectives about like what this opposition movement looks like and so I'm familiar with that through people I went to high school with are really involved there. And I was like, whoa, what's happening in my own home place? I had no idea about any of this and spiraled into learning more and more about um, the history of pipelines, but also the history of like treaty violations and and, and violations to indigenous peoples in my own home state. And um, so then was looking to get involved locally here. Um, Cause obviously that's not something that's unique happening in Minnesota. It's been happening around the country. So yeah, then I reached out to Phyllis, highlighting the network of um, exploitation that Enbridge commits across the Great Lakes region and have just gotten further and further involved through that. And as for me, um, before this, I was um, leading a group called Fitchburg Fields, and we had a 4,000 square foot garden where we grew food organically for food pantries and classes on how to cook and how to preserve food. And uh, so that was a you know, food sovereignty group. And it was really important work, but uh, it was kind of gnawing at me the whole time for years that like, I really should be working on, C- on, on climate change, that there's nothing more important than that. And so uh, I just left that group and started working against pipelines. That's great. Um, thank you. I just, yeah, as young people, I think people are really interested in kind of how you guys get your start in all of this. So thank you. Um, Can we throw the question back at you all? How did you all get interested in, in yeah. talking climate? Oh, turning the tables. Let's see how the turntables have turned tables. <laughs> I think what like really inspired a lot of my energy for, like I, I think going to one of those first climate strikes and just kind of seeing a whole bunch of youth coming together and just like how much energy that brought together really um, is what got me excited about it. And I think especially living in Madison, I think there's a lot of talk about how our lakes are affected. So like more into water quality issues, you know, it's something that more affects our community in Madison. Just joining groups like school clubs and like learning more information that way. Long story short, I would say just kind of seeing youth come together for the movement has really been empowering. And how about Mario? I grew up like around like a forest area and like this is where I spent most of my childhood just playing around like the forest and then uh, it started getting cut down for like development and I was like you know this is like really bad so I started growing up I started getting more into like uh, climate activism. 
one thing you said, uh, Zella, about young people wonder how you got into this, and I'm sure they also wonder how you get a job so you can be paid to do this kind of work, and I am actually paid to do this work. And you start out as a volunteer, that's the answer. Um, mm -hmm. So that people see that you're dedicated, you're hardworking, you do a good job, and then when they have an opening, they just think of you. And, you know, they may hire up, they may interview a bunch of people, but People trust somebody they've already worked with more than they trust the stranger. Which is tough too, because it also assumes like a lot of class privilege and time privilege to be able to show up as a volunteer, which I know I like are things that I hold and why I'm able to continue to show up in this space. And so I also just want to say like um, being experienced at organizing for climate change is not the same as experiencing like living on the front lines of climate change changing your way of life or like your family's way of life I, there's also like some some ways that climate activism is also disassociated from you know other forms of justice and world building yeah that's a really good point and many of the best organizers are people like in the work i do i see this of people whose homes are threatened by a pipeline so it's not, they never did volunteer for an environmental thing before, and they may not see this as an environmental thing either. They see it as protecting their land and their land and their property rights. And that's fine. There's so many different reasons a person could be against a pipeline, and we welcome them all to join in our groups. Would you guys mind explaining briefly just the history of pipeline construction in our country? Um, I, I really can't do that broad, but I can tell you um, the history of, of the oil pipelines in, in Wisconsin. So Line 5 was um, put in in 1963, and it comes from Superior, Wisconsin, like I said before, and goes all the way back to Sarnia, Canada. And um, in those days, people did not know much about the dangers of pipelines. They didn't know about the spills and, and the terrible effects of, of spills and leakage. And so they went through the Bad River Reservation and like everybody else, they didn't think to fight it. Like nobody thought to fight it back then. Or maybe some people did, but they weren't organized. They didn't have a whole group and so they lost out if they were trying to fight it. Um, most people give an easement, that's like an agreement that they can put the pipeline on your land. Um, forever okay forever when you sell an easement that means they can keep their pipeline there forever or they when they're finished with the pipeline they can just leave it there to rot and that's your problem um, and, or they could sell the easement to Saudi Arabia or China or any company and they could put something different there um, like a highway I mean they would still need to get permission from the state to put a highway there but they they don't need permission from you. Um, so, but Indian tribes, uh, because they are sovereign nations, they have a little more right in that way. And so they could sign a 50 year easement. And so that's what they did. And um, so in 2013, that was uh, 50 years was up. So in 2013, a bunch of easements on the Bad River Reservation were up. And then by that time, they knew a whole lot more than their 
their predecessors had known about the dangers of pipelines, and they decided they didn't want this anymore on their, on their land. They asked Enbridge to take it out, and they would not. And so a year ago in July, they sued Enbridge to get them to take it out. Strangely enough, the, the court date was set for June 2021. That seems like justice delayed could be justice denied. But anyway, that's where we are, and we can go into a, a, another update later. That's basically where we are with line five. And then um, later in 68, they put in the first of those lines in the line 61 corridor. And then another one in 2005, and then 2008, two more. So that's all the oil pipelines there are in Wisconsin. And is it right that with the tar sands, um, so it's coming from Canada and then it's brought down closer to where we live then to get processed? No, just a pass through. We're just okay. through country. It's just okay. coming through Minnesota and um, Wisconsin. Now there is a, a refinery on the shores of Lake Superior in, in Superior called uh, Husky Refinery. And they take a tiny bit of, of this oil and refine it. But they had an accident Hmm, I think it's almost two years ago, it blew up, refinery blew up and caused some terrible pollution uh, there. And then they had to shut it down, of course, and they're still working at trying to fix it. But all the rest of it is just passing through Wisconsin and going through Michigan and back into Canada. Sarnia in, in Ontario, Canada is where they do most of the refining. How do pipelines uh, negatively impact the environment? What examples of this exist in Wisconsin? Pipelines pump so much oil and chemicals at like millions of barrels a day or something. At any point, pumping oil is a threat to the landscape that it's being pumped through. You know what I mean? A burst at, at any point in that pipeline will be devastating to the ecosystem of that, like, that surrounds that pipeline. We say it's not a matter of if the pipeline bursts, but when it bursts, that these, there's no way to create a perfect pipeline construction. Um, and I think, you know, I think there was an example in Minnesota where the pipeline, it was held up so long in court that the, the pipes that Enbridge was going to use to transport oil had already like become a less safe option on the market um, because pipelines, they're just imperfect tools that are going to burst at a certain point. So um, in Kalamazoo, Michigan, Enbridge is the company with like one of the, uh, it was one of the biggest pipeline leaks um, ever. And Phyllis, you want to go further into that? I don't even know. Sure, sure. So uh, the, it, um, near Marshall, Michigan, in July of 2010, this um, utility man spotted oil in a wetland and he called up Enbridge and then they shut it down. But they had actually sensed it through their sensors. Up in Canada, they in the control room, they said, look at that, there's a drop of pressure in Marshall, Michigan. Oh, maybe it's an air bubble in there. Let's try turning it off, turn it on. Turn it off, turn it on. And they did that um, on and off for 17 hours which only made it much, much worse. It wasn't an air bubble. It was a loss of pressure because there was a huge gash, like six feet long in, in the pipe. And so um, when they finally turned it off, like 
over a million gallons had spilled. It filled up this wetland and then it filled up a creek and then Talmadge Creek goes into the Kalamazoo River and it fouled almost 40 miles of the Kalamazoo River, killed everything. And as they cleaned it up, the, the National Academy of Sciences did a report on this and they said, we need to find new solutions for cleaning up tar sands oil in water because it does not behave like regular crude oil and we cannot clean it up really. I mean, they cleaned up some of it, but they estimate that there's 15% of it is still there stuck to the rocks or the river bottom. And at a certain point they were dredging and dredging and they said, you know what, we're, we're causing more pollution than if we just left it where it was. So that's what they did. Because it but, sinks, right? It's really heavy. Yeah, it's really heavy because it's tarry sand and, uh, to make it flow through a pipe, they have to dilute it with what they call diluent, which is all these poisonous chemicals, including benzene and hydrogen sulfide. And when the pipe bursts, those revolatilize, meaning they become gas again. They were liquids, they helped it flow, but then they become gas. And they're heavier than air. So if you live nearby in, in a hollow, that those gases would go down into the hollow. And then if you made a phone call or turned on your lights or did anything that causes a spark, the house could blow up. So that, and it could also uh, suffocate you and it could um, also give you cancer. So that's why people don't want to live near pipelines. Um, and now, of course, nowadays too, they have another reason in that it's facilitating the burning of fossil fuel and we just have to look around at what nature is telling us about um, the influence of burning fossil fuels, all these wildfires in, out west and floods and tornadoes and so on. And even like in addition to the environmental consequences, the process of building pipelines also brings in um, what pe people call man camps, which are like just uh, temporary places for pipeline constructors and um, laborers to live and are predominantly, you know, men of a certain age that um, pose a threat to specifically indigenous women um, who are not protected by legally or jurisdictionally by assault from those people. And it's well known and it's well documented and um, Native women in Wisconsin and around the country are speaking about, you know, the extremely alarming rates of missing and murdered indigenous women and just to give another reason why we don't need like these extractive industries to continue to show up at the door of tribal communities and barge in and assault rape kill indigenous women wow that's why i mean that's one of the many reasons that so many indian tribes are fighting fossil fuel infrastructure projects. And of course, another huge reason is the water. And as you know, they're water protectors. And um, like they say, water is life. You can't live without it. You can live without oil, but you can't live without water. So you kind of touched on this a little bit, but if you want to just go into kind of which communities are most vulnerable to these negative impacts, whether that be where they're living or on the environment they're living in, um, who's most vulnerable in these situations? Well, I would say starting where, where it's mined and in Alberta, and that's where uh, the Cree Indians live, and they have really high rates of cancer. I mean, it's, 
it's it's such a polluting industry up there it's incredible and then the whole problem with man camps and so on and uh and then the people who live all along the line which is vastly different demographics you know because they're always a danger of, of a rupture and then the people who live where it's refined and that's often black and brown communities and certainly poor people because who else would live in such a stinky place but someone who couldn't afford something more healthy and all those communities from start to finish and then actually the world community too because continuing to to burn these fossil fuels is hurting all of them. what are your organizations doing to create change can you give us a specific work that you are doing uh to combat the pipeline destructions uh most recently we organized and helped a, a lot of people participate in a hearing at the DNR. So that was a virtual hearing, oh, yeah. of course. And it was um, about the wetlands and waterways permit that the DNR could give to Enbridge to build this pipeline. And let's see, over 500 people uh, attended. That's very unusual. Um, and there were 1,605 comments, written comments submitted. That's also very unusual. And there were some great articles and, and radio stories about it too. So um, basically what we're doing is um, organizing both up in the Ashland area and then also in Dane County and, and statewide to um, educate people about how dangerous this is and get them to speak out. And people write letters mm -hmm. to the editor and quite a few organizations um, submitted long, detailed comments of scientific stuff as to why this uh, the DNR should not grant a permit to this. And um, we also tried to intervene at the Public Service Commission, and that Enbridge applied to them for a permit to use eminent domain. So if uh, your listeners might not know what that means, that's the power that the government has to take a person's land. Um, they have to pay them what is considered fair market value, but it doesn't matter if you don't want to sell. You're forced to sell. Now, that, um, that is how we have parks and hospitals and schools and all these things that are for public use. In the Constitution, that says the government can do that. And, you know, nobody likes to lose their land. But on the other hand, we do need those public institutions. But what is really, really wrong is eminent domain for private gain. And that, since 2005, has been legal. And you'll get a company like Enbridge can just take your land and say, here's some money, and we're putting a pipeline through. But they can only do that if the Public Service Commission says, yes, that's in the public interest. And so um, we, we were hoping to make a whole case there against that. But in the end, Enbridge got some big delays granted to them by the Public Service Commission that gave them a chance to pressure some other landowners and they found a, a route. They completed their route. Before that, they had, there were some holdouts who wouldn't sell to them and that's why they wanted to get eminent domain so they could force them to sell. But I think when they saw how many people were opposed, mm -hmm. they thought, uh-oh, we, we're going to have to pull out all the stops because what if we lose this case at the PSC, right? So then they said, okay, whatever these farmers want, I think we're going to give it to them. I'm just speculating now, but that seems likely. And so then people sold out who hadn't, who had hold, held out for a long time. So no case for us. So that's too bad. But we continue to work on the um, DNR. And then Mira, you could talk about uh, influencing the governor. Yeah, I would say we do two things between like 
one educating people about the pipeline um and the consequences of pipeline construction and all the reasons why it's really exploitative and already extractive industry um and then two i really appreciate the policy perspective and attention on um you know just a lot of really smart people paying attention to like what bills are being passed or introduced in the assembly and senate that pose a challenge or are directly influencing this battle. So um, I think two, like two springs ago, talking about, or maybe even this fall, talking about um, Senate Bill 426 or 486 about making, there was a bill introduced, making it a felony to protest on someone else's land, like a felony to trespass essentially. And uh, the bill was introduced like falsely as a, protection for labor workers, like people, for union workers, which is a really enticing thing um, in Wisconsin that is supposed to like cross the, the purple aisle, but essentially a bill that would make it even illegal for you to oppose pipelines on your own land. So a very like specific example of how mm-hmm. um, companies that aren't not even like, you know, Enbridge is not even in this you know, national boundary, like Enbridge is in Canada and they've still got their fingers in our state government, which is just so insidious and nasty. Mm-hmm. So um, yes, as a team, we're like paying attention to that and rallying people around um, participating in local government to make sure that people know about this. Obviously we're living in an information age and there's so much to know about so many places. So just trying to like keep people who care about this stuff up to date in fun and exciting ways. Another one we're working on is the storytelling project, the Tarzan storytelling project. So a couple years ago before I was involved, they did a like a multi-panel project telling the story of Tarzans and how it affects a lot of people's lives across the state. So this collection of paintings traveled across Wisconsin telling that story. Who made the tapestries? It was like a tapestry, but they were paintings. Yeah. Um, it was 10 artists from around, the, from around the state, from all over the state. One of them lives here in, in Madison, Helen Clabus Adel. They're beautiful. And some of them are very disturbing, too. Um, so it sort of is the tar sand story from cradle to grave. Mm-hmm. And you can, you can find it. If you uh, Google tar sand storytelling project, you will find it. And you can see uh, each one of those and, and the statements by the artists. What can youth do to uh, be aware of what's happening with the pipelines? Well, it would be great if people um, signed up at the 350 Madison site. They have a really good um, you know, newsletter that comes out and um, monthly meetings with speakers, which are, of course, now virtual. And that's just at 350madison.org. And they can also join committees like the Tar Sands team. And, um, and you can find that also on the 350 Madison website. And anything um, older people do, young people can do too. And Mira, you were going to say something you said about being in an intergenerational group. Yeah, um, I really appreciate I don't know if I'm technically youth. Would y'all consider me a youth? I'm like, okay, cool. Yes. I think so, yeah. Because you all are yeah. dumb, but I want to be one of you. Yeah, I, the, the like, Tar Sands team is a really unique team um, in my experience because it's a mix between 
yeah, multi-generational like organizing, which is such an interesting like thing to witness. You know what I mean? Like we're on Zoom calls and it's like witnessing some people trying to figure out how to unmute themselves while watching other people like explain to everyone else how to change your background in like a in like a public service commission's meeting or something. So like just the mix of like styles and methods, but like that bring everyone there together. I think it would be awesome to be affiliated with a group that has as much like institutional and campaign specific knowledge as the Tar Sands team. I've learned so much joining that group and I'm still a part of like youth organizing groups like in on my campus and in my community. And so I think being like multi-affinity based and really knowing what you care about. So I'm like part of, you know, two campaigns to divest the UW system from fossil fuels, um, Wisconsin Student Climate Action Coalition, which is Madison specific, but also the University of Wisconsin System um, Divestment Coalition. And I show up in those spaces and really appreciate being a part of like other youth specific groups and like, like these are my people, we speak the same language, we're, we're targeting the same people um, within our own youth community being, you know, our college campuses. And I show up to those knowing that what I'm really there for is to, to talk about line five and to, because I, this is the one that I care so much about and can see like the consequence of uh, fossil fuel investment. And so I show up there and get to share the knowledge that I gain and learn and, you know, from organizing within this tar sands intergenerational team and get to like, spread excitement and motivation among my peers in mm -hmm. a space that is not so focused outside of our own sphere of influence. Hey, I wanted to um, also get around to talking about the, the four really important things that are threatened by the Line 5 reroute. And I realize we haven't even talked about the reroute. Because the Bad River Band filed a lawsuit and said, you have to remove this pipeline from our uh, reservation, and Enbridge knows they're going to lose that, and so uh, even though they're trying to delay it and all, but they decided, okay, we'll make a U-shaped detour around the reservation. So it goes just outside the reservation to the south of it and then back up and joins the line again. I mean, the plan for it does. and. Um, they, it's actually worse for Lake Superior uh, than the old line. It would be because it cuts through even more rivers and streams. But if it, if it broke right where it crosses the Bad River, that is in Copper Falls State Park. And I don't know if you've ever been there, but you should go and you should go before it gets ruined. But hopefully we're going to stop it so it won't be ruined. But it totally would be ruined because it's there's this, all these magnificent waterfalls and they would act like a chute and just take that oil and just shoot it downstream faster than any responders could possibly uh, respond. And the people who live there have told us it is such wild and rugged country that there's no way you could get workers in there to try and do anything about the oil. And then it comes down into the lower part and it, it would go into the Kakagan sloughs and that is a, um, a wetland area just just before it turns into Lake Superior. And that's where the wild rice grows. 
and wild rice is a very delicate plant and it can't deal with much pollution so it could it would probably be wiped out forever if it got an oil spill there and that's what the tribes need it not only to eat they also sell it and it's also a spiritual thing for them harvesting and, and, and preparing and eating it. So that would just be super devastating to them if they lost their wild rice bed. Um, and then the, the third thing that's endangered is of course Lake Superior itself and Madeline Island and the Apostle Islands. The, there would be oil on all of those. And then also the entire Great Lakes is threatened by the greater Line 5 because wow. right, the Straits of Mackinac is where Lake Huron and Lake Michigan come together. And it's very choppy and, and, and has all these strong currents. And there, uh, it splits into two smaller pipes, 20 inches, and they go along the bottom, and then they come up out the other side and join into one pipe and, and go back on, on under land. But they're just sitting on the bottom there, and there has been two or more anchor strikes where boats put down their anchors and they hit the pipe and they dented it. So if they dented it, they could have broken it. And it is so old and decrepit that it could, it could break any time. And then if you Google animation line five, Lake Superior, you will find a little animation that some scientists did and that shows you over the hours after the break where the different components of the oil would spread. And eventually it would spread to the entire Great Lakes. Yeah. That just makes me nauseous thinking about like- I know. a massive impact, yeah. Mario, I'm, I'm like feeling back to what you said at the beginning of this about what got you invested in climate activism and, and seeing that forest next to your house. And just like, I, I feel like I can relate to that. And that like seeing the trees behind my parents' house cut down to like expand transportation, which I'm one good one hand in bed, but just like the gut devastation of like, oh, that is like, that is like life that we will not ever get back. Yeah, this like entire ecosystem, so just go away. Just yeah. go just away. For profit, basically. And the Great Lakes, if you don't have a personal connection to those yet, like get up there because they are stunning. That is just some of like really, some of the most unique nature in the mm -hmm. world. Yeah, the Ashland area is amazing. I think we just have a couple more questions. Um, but what has your work taught you that might not be obvious to most people, even members of the climate movement? I'll say one thing that um, I work with landowners a, a lot. Uh, before, I used to travel a lot and, and knock on doors and, and just cold knock and talk to people. Um, and now it's done virtually or on the telephone. But I think not everybody realizes how you can really get diff very different people together in a group to do something. So, you know, our society is right now very, um, you know, divided. But in uh, the groups of Wisconsin Safe Energy Alliance, we have people who voted for different people for president and um, have different attitudes about many different things. And we just tell them, okay, we don't agree on everything, but we agree we don't want this pipeline. So we're just gonna concentrate on that. And we're not gonna talk about those other things. And when people 
try to make a joke about somebody else's favorite politician. We just say, no, we're not talking about that now. And um, I, I, I wish more people could, could uh, try and do that because I think we, we have a lot more in common with people who maybe vote differently than we do than is obvious. And saving your home and your community from uh, onslaught by Enbridge is something that anybody can share. Do you have like any advice for young people that want to get into like your work? I guess my advice and one of my like successes or wins as a young person would be organizing my own family, like organizing my own parents. Um, so for the longest time, our family was in, invested in Wells Fargo and through work at 350 and tar sands learning about like how where you put your money has such a big impact much bigger than just like what interest rates you're going to get back or you know savings profiles but so i stirred up a lot of like commotion around that with my family and um it went very it didn't go very far at first, but then now in this moment where a lot of people are awakening to how their life every day um, is either contributing or contesting an unjust system. Um, my parents divested from Wells Fargo. Um, so yeah, I guess, I guess it's big and important to continue like lobbying elected officials and standing in the face of these giants, but there's also like um, like so many subversive things you can do just with own, your own space. The yeah. other thing I would say is that in order to be effective and like super awesome at whatever you do is to do it in a vein that like really reflects you and what you care about. And that means like both the like world building justice oriented seeking things you care about but also like the fun things you do to unwind and to connect to people and to connect yourself and so i want to highlight to a campaign that is running in campaign but there's someone in minnesota that is organizing against line three and loves snowboarding and so has just started a snow line three campaign so he shows up to the slopes and he's like you know, repping this, you know, anti-pipeline um, flag as he's like snowboarding down the hills and has organized this really awesome snow oh, awesome. community around um, something that seems to be completely disassociated. <laughs> you could draw like all those like climate change, snow, yeah, yeah. But like really this dude just loves snowboarding, knows where he is in his community and, you know, has influence um and infuses political into the pleasurable so i would say like that yeah i i get really excited and motivated to continue doing that like deep hard interpersonal mm -hmm. and work people make it so fun yeah and i feel like what you're you were saying about kind of convincing your parents and really working on that in ace the group that we're in we talk a lot about how important those climate conversations are and just how sometimes like the biggest change can happen with people you already have relationships with and like convincing people of things, how that's also a really important place to start. Yeah. Yeah. So just to end it off, we just wanted to ask, um, what does a future without pipelines look like to you? Um, a future without pipelines? Yeah. Cool. 
uh, and I have to say a future without oil pipeline, oil and gas pipelines, because we're not against sewer pipelines. We're not against water pipelines. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, that would be a future with different forms of energy, like solar and wind and tidal and geothermal and all those kinds of natural things and a future where everyone has a job because there's so much work to do to um, turn around the damage that's already been done to our world and i understand we need to plant a trillion trees so it could be an awful lot of jobs planting trees and um you know, doing agriculture in a different way that uses more people power and less fossil fuels. And yeah, I don't know, maybe um, travel agencies that put you on a horse or a donkey instead of an airplane. Oh, I love it. <laughs> what would you say, Mira? That's such a beautiful question. And I don't know if I've ever thought about it, but now I'm like spitting out about all the other ways that this campaign makes me think about the world. So I would say a world without, or a, a place without pipelines. Um, I imagine this place to be a place where people are more connected to land, connected to the land around them, um, where they travel locally and move slower through their landscape, um, where gas is consumed more consciously. This would be a utopia or a place where people are connected to, I'd say the the political processes that decide whether a pipeline goes through or not and a and a place where those political processes respond to people that are showing up people that are not bought to be showing up but gently feel compelled so i would say i would go back to like what we were talking about too with like that felt sense of like environmental destruction and and so a place where people have that same feeling that like Mario had with the trees in his backyard that I have with the trees in my backyard that like we all have this felt sense of how devastating harm those landscapes and natural worlds is. Well said. Thanks for asking that thank question. You. Yeah, thank you. One more question before we end and that is uh, do you guys have anything to plug? Yeah, I would plug the Tar Sands team and just I think affiliating in any sense um, can be like a measure of accountability and repetitive showing up. And honestly, yeah, you learn so much. So um, the first Monday of every month, the Tar Sands team, which is a joint team between the Sierra Club and 350 Madison, um, meets around 545. And I think you can sign up on 350 Madison's like you can get the Zoom link at 350 Madison's website. And then, so it, ha it so happens that the Tar Sands team meets first and then with the 15 minute break is the entire monthly meeting for the 350 Madison. And that's always with a speaker. Well, thank I would you. also add one last thing about being a youth, also organizing in an intergenerational sense, is sometimes it's difficult to find your voice, to be like, oh, I know what I'm talking about now. Like, oh, I finally get it. <laughs> but I think, um, and I think it's important to be like listening and also know when it's powerful to speak up at the same time. So like, I feel like I do a lot of listening at the Tar Sands meetings, but then I'm able to like speak up about what I was listening about in other like youth 
spaces. Um, so that's yeah. the random piece that Mario, I hope you figure out what to do with or discard. <laughs> <laughs> it shouldn't be a problem. What the editor's for. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, you guys, for like sharing your expertise and all of this. Um, we really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, we appreciate getting a chance to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also excited to hear about y'all's expertise. Mm-hmm. especially doing this podcast and, and now we'll leave you with a fabulous Seth I never saw that those feathers before Seth those are just awesome that you're wearing and I will say good night thank you Phyllis mm-hmm. <laughs> cool see y'all thank you Bye. thank you so all right so now we're here speaking with Seth Jensen of 350 Madison's Divest and Defund campaign um and I'm Zella Milfred I'm Mario Canacasco um, so to start, could you just give us a quick description, doesn't have to be super long, but just of what the Divest into Fun team is? Yeah, I would say um, Divest into Fund is the arm of 350 Madison that um, is aimed at stopping the money pipeline. So what do we mean when we say the money pipeline? Uh, I think Bill McKibben put it really well when he said that uh, money is the oxygen on which the fires of climate change burn. Um, So getting down to the business level of all that, uh, as I know you've been talking about with um, Phyllis and Mira, there are these pipelines throughout Wisconsin, there's um, pipelines carrying really dirty, nasty oil throughout the United States and even the world, and the pipeline companies Um, are looking to expand, which would be pretty disastrous for our climate and for the future. Um, But they don't really have the means to do that without the support of banks. They really need loans, large loans of money. Um, And so if we can um, pressure the big banks, pressure Wall Street to stop loaning money to the fossil fuel industry, to companies like Enbridge, Um, and the mining companies that are taking tar sands oil out of those plains in Alberta, then it's like, you know, cutting off oxygen to a fire. You know, what happens to a fire if you like cover it up and um, basically make it so it can't breathe anymore, it goes out. Well, we can do the same thing to the the really destructive fires of the fossil fuel industry. And um, divest and defund engages in a variety of um, actions to make that happen. Um, is that, so are you speaking to, like, I know I've heard the title, the Not My Dirty Money campaign. Um, so what is that and how is 350 Madison connected to it? Or is that kind of what we're already speaking to? Um, a little bit. Although let me, uh, respond to your question as I often do with a question. I'm curious, um, Zella and Mario, um, do you have, a bank account, like a checking account. Yep. Yeah. Okay. What about a credit card or debit card? I have a credit no. card and debit card. Okay. And I do not. Yeah. All right. So um, a lot of a lot of youth these days do have credit cards and checking accounts, and um, uh, even more so than when I was young, an adolescent. The um, especially the big banks are really trying very hard to essentially capture the youth market, basically to get their credit cards in the hands of as many young people as possible, to um, 
really try and get um, as many young people as possible to open their first checking account with their bank. Um, and so Not My Dirty Money is a youth-led effort to get um, as many young people as possible, basically between the ages of 13 and 25, to sign a pledge saying, I am not gonna bank with specifically Chase Bank, because Chase Bank is the largest funder of fossil fuels right now, Give more, giving more loans to um, the big oil companies, the pipeline builders than anyone else. Um, so essentially, yeah, it's, it's actually really pretty simple and straightforward. I think now is when I'll, I'll just give a website that I mm -hmm. probably repeat a few more times in the course of this uh, interview, which is notmydirtymoney.org, a website that I really encourage anyone and everyone to visit. And if you're in that age group of 13 to 25, really encourage you to sign it. Um, this is what really will make the big banks scared. They should be scared of the fact that they're fueling the climate crisis and that all these disasters that we're seeing are in many ways directly linked to their financial policies, especially Chase Bank. Um, but unfortunately, it's really hard to get CEOs to think in those sorts of time frames of, you know, the loans I make now, even like in one or two years, could translate into climate disaster and repeated climate disasters, um, like what we're seeing in Oregon. But um, they, they can really think in terms of and move in terms of things like, oh my gosh, we're, we're losing the youth market. Uh, young people are in revolt. They're, re they're refusing to bank with us. They're telling their friends that they're not gonna bank with us until we like literally, literally clean up our act. So once again, Not My Dirty Money is basically a website you can visit to start that process of making the, the big bankers scared that if they don't clean up their act fast, their business, their bottom line is gonna suffer sooner rather than later. I guess, is there anything you want to um, touch on on how this campaign relates to the injustice of pipeline construction? Yeah, I, I think I will. And um, I should probably add to what I, what I just said is that this website, it's, it's really simple. The page that they offer for the pledge, it's, it's a really simple form of action, just like fill out your name in a few fields and your email address. And or if you're not young, I mean, anyone can sign the pledge, but we really encourage folks if you're not in that youth demographic to send the pledge on and advertise it on mediums like Facebook and all that. So the injustice of pipeline construction, I think it really comes down to, I assume that Phyllis and Mira um, really kind of laid out the, the nitty gritty mm -hmm. ugliness of what it means for communities when, um, when a pipeline is either built and or expanded near where they live. And you know, the litany of spills particularly caused by Enbridge is just long and ugly and gross. Well, basically it comes down to Enbridge is not gonna be able to expand their pipeline network if the big banks aren't financing them. Enbridge doesn't have like a lot of offices. They don't have like a lot of brick and mortar places where you can go and demonstrate against them and really have much of an impact. Um, so they're, in that sense, they're a little harder to reach. But um, 
if banks start withholding money from them and enact policies, as many have done with the coal industry, then they will start to react. So they're reachable in that sense. And so again, that's kind of where we come in, why it's important to do things like protests and actions and sign pledges targeting the banks, because banks really do depend on customers. And those of us who are customers or potentially could be customers of Chase Bank have a lot of leverage to, um, again, make them scared. So try and simplify a little bit. The banks, the pipeline builders need the support of the banks and the banks need the goodwill of their customers. And so if we as potential customers can strip away that goodwill until they start behaving, it's really sort of like training a pet in many ways. CEOs ultimately in many ways are like dogs. They respond to positive reinforcement, but they really respond to repetitive negative reinforcement. So every signature on say that, that pledge, that not my dirty money pledge, is another bit of like negative reinforcement, um, reinforcing that they're misbehaving and they really need to correct their behavior. And I guess I'll just one more thing I'll say is that we, we have seen this work. Um, like years ago, it used to be that um, Wall Street was heavily invested in coal. And not that they're not invested in coal anymore, but there's been like um, multiple campaigns by different groups against different big banks like Wells Fargo, um, PNC and others. Bank of America is a big one. Um, campaigns that said you really just cannot be funding coal anymore. It's the absolute worst of the worst in terms of um, in terms of climate disruption. And now it's not that Wall Street is totally divested, but this is like coal is like too hot to handle for many banks. Many banks now have policies saying, you know, we're just not going to invest in coal or the worst of the worst of the coal. So that's why now we're kind of many groups are taking the next step of like, let's get banks out of like the second worst fossil fuel and the third worst fossil fuel and like all fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, negative reinforcement has worked in the past. Yeah, and just kind of starting at the top, right? Like they need this funding um, and taking that away. Yeah. Um, so I guess my last thing would just be after signing the Youth Climate Pledge, do you have any other advice for how youth can get involved in this divesting and defunding work? Hmm. Well, I know that if you sign the pledge, you will probably get um, a fair amount of information from Not My Dirty Money and from Stop the Money Pipeline. So I guess I, because there's two really big websites I want to promote. One is notmydirtymoney.org, which is pretty much just the pledge. But then this other website, Stop the Money Pipeline, once again, when we say money pipeline, we mean all that financial support that the fossil fuel industry really needs. Um, stop my money, stop the money pipeline.org um, goes into a lot more detail about action um, that folks can take. Um, yeah, ways to get involved in pressuring the financial industry to get out of the fossil fuel industry. And of course, I just like reiterate and reaffirm everything Phyllis and Mira said about, you know, 350madison.org being a really good organization that 
is not only involved in like this very direct confrontation against the pipeline builders, but is also, you know, we're, we're, we're actively pressuring Chase Bank um, along with many groups around the country. Um, so yeah, wouldn't be right if I didn't say some good stuff about them. Um, I have one question. Uh, so where should youth do their banking? Yeah, um, so Stop the Money Pipeline has some good general resources on that question. I can say that this, this Divest Fund team, um, we were successful, and there's a little bit more information around this on, at 350madison.org. It's a little bit before my time, but I know that um, we were successful in persuading UW Credit Union to issue a kind of like sustainable investment, no investment in fossil fuel policy. Um, generally speaking, credit unions uh, are just more accountable financial institutions. And there's a, there's a lot of good credit unions options in Madison. So I belong to a credit union. I, I generally generally say you're, you're, you're probably supporting, if you have values of sustainability and community, you're probably going to find that your money is supporting more of those values and less values of um, climate destruction in a credit union. I won't say totally, but most, most, most fossil fuel companies, as I understand it, are not going to credit unions for the dollars that they need. But again, for a really uh, for a, for for better and more detailed resources on that question, um, Stop the Money Pipeline has a, a good section. StopTheMoneyPipeline.org. You want to add anything, Seth? Any advice? Anything? Any other plugs? Oh, I guess just that um, it's it's a great question that you ask, Mario. Um, but um, I guess generally. Going back to when I was a young person, I guess if, 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 if I had asked that question, I'm trying to think of like what I wish I had been told. And I guess I wish I had been told the importance of um, what's generally referred to as organizing, basically getting, to, getting together with other people to build up the kind of power that's necessary to take on, let's face it, very powerful, um, institutions. So like Chase Bank um, is a uh, is, is multi-million dollar institution, not going to bend very easily. Um, but I think through the power of people working together to um, take action to again, make them afraid, they like many other banks have done with coal, I think they will capitulate. Um, so don't, don't ever underestimate your own power to make these big banks afraid, especially by working together. Thank you so much. And thank you for putting these resources too. Yeah, it's great. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to do so. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's been a total delight speaking with both of you. <laughs> no, we really appreciate it. We really do. I would just like to say uh, good night. Good night. Good night. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Youth Talk Climate. Special thanks to our guests, Phyllis Hasbrook, Mira Grinsfelder, and Seth Jensen. Join 350 Madison at their monthly meetings on the first Monday of every month at 7 p.m. to continue this pipeline conversation and learn more about their other initiatives. 
And remember to sign the Youth Climate Pledge to stop the money pipeline at www.notmydirtymoney.com. This podcast is created by a team of Youth Action Fellows from the Alliance for Climate Education. We are Kali Gagan, Sophie Smith, and today's hosts, Zella Milford and Mario Kanakasco. Thank you for listening and follow us on Instagram at Youth Talk Climate. Peace.